0: Thanks, Luke. Praise team. I will say uh, for all the parents in here of children, if this is your first time to be uh, without Children's Church, just relax a little bit. It's okay. We understand that there's going to be a little bit more movement with kids in here, and that's okay. We anticipate it. So you can relax on the reins a little bit. Don't let go of them completely, but you can... You can relax a little bit. Everything's going to be fine. So, uh, open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter six, starting in verse sixteen. Matthew six sixteen to eighteen is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew six sixteen to eighteen. Last year, I uh, went to Tanzania on a mission trip, and some of the some of our team went to the villages and they were sharing the gospel in the villages that they went to. And I worked with local pastors in, uh, on that island where we were going through the book of Matthew. Ironically, we were walking through the entire book together showing them how to teach it and things like that. That was the first time that I'd ever set foot on the continent of Africa. And I will say that it, what I experienced there changed my life really forever in many ways, but not in any of the ways that I thought it would Going in, uh, we stayed on a school ground there on Masomi Island, which is an island uh, just off the southern coast of Lake Victoria. So, right in the middle of Lake Victoria, there are a bunch of little islands with indigenous people on them, and we were on one of those islands called Misomi Island. And um, our, our campground was about a mile, about a mile by foot. Well, I guess it's about a mile, regardless of whether you're going by foot or by car, but uh, it was about a mile, and everybody there was on foot. Uh, so it was about a mile to uh, the, the shore of the lake, which was really our only source of fresh water in the area. And so I watched these women every morning get up and walk a mile to the shore of the lake. With a five-gallon bucket in their hand, and then they would dip the five-gallon bucket in crocodile-infested waters, and would put the five-gallon bucket on their head. And with no hands, they would put this bucket on their head, and they would walk back to a, a, another mile back to the village or the campgrounds where we were. They would take the five-gallon bucket and they would dump it into a cauldron. Uh, yeah, a cauldron. And then they would start their walk back to the lake to get more water. And and they did this no telling how many times during the day so that we would have clean water to bathe with and, and things like that. And it made me think about the most basic necessities of life. I think that's one of the things that struck me the most being there. Now for me and you, fresh water is as simple as turning on the faucet. There's nothing more to it than just turning on the faucet. And for you and me, food is nothing more than a phone call away at most, an app maybe. I can open up an app on my phone and I can order groceries that will be delivered to my doorstep in just a matter of, of minutes, in no time at all. But one trip to Africa made me realize the lengths to which you will go to have the most ba- your most basic needs met. I think if I were to be in Africa or any of us were to be in that situation, if I were to be there, what links would I go to to provide my most basic needs? I, too, would probably take that five-gallon bucket, hand it to my wife and tell her to go down <laughs> to the lake and get, and get some fresh water. I mean, we got to have it, right? <laughs> I, I, too, would probably kill anything and eat just about anything to make sure that my family would have food to eat? And what links would you go to to ensure that your family had the most, their most basic needs met? In our text this morning, Jesus is going to address the spiritual discipline of fasting, which by net definition is depriving yourself of one of your most basic needs, the need for food. Now, every one of us in this room will maybe have or or, or may be familiar with fasting in different contexts. Maybe for like medical reasons before surgery or things like that where you have to to fast before a particular procedure. Or maybe for dietary reasons to lose weight or to, you know, for for diabetes or, or certain things like that where you might have to fast occasionally. So we all understand that there are certain times where we're familiar with fasting. But even though we would go to great lengths for those things, have we connected fasting to our soul? How far, even though we'll go that far for medical procedures or for dietary reasons, how far are we willing to go for our soul? That's the real question that we're dealing with this morning. How far will you go for your soul? With that in mind, let's read our text this morning in Matthew 6, 16-18. I want to take a minute to just remind us of where we are in the book of Matthew because this passage has shifted from where we were last week and the few weeks prior to that. Remember, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5 to 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is introducing His hearers to the kingdom. That's the main purpose of that Sermon on the Mount, is to introduce the hearers to the kingdom of God and explain what it really is. So in chapter 5, Jesus is basically laying out for us the, the character of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So He starts with a profile of this citizen. This is what this citizen looks like. And he does that in the Beatitudes. Here's what makes him up. He is poor in spirit. This person is a mourner. He is meek and so on and so forth. But then he goes on in the rest of chapter 5 and explains that the righteous works of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven exceeds the righteousness found in the Pharisees. So we find out that Pharisaic righteousness is mostly concerned with outward appearance. It's mostly concerned with outward appearance. So as an example, he doesn't commit adultery. Well, that's a good thing that he doesn't commit adultery, but that's the point is that he it's outward in appearance. He doesn't commit adultery. And so when you look at him you go he doesn't he doesn't sin in that regard but the righteousness that God requires, the righteousness of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is not only that he doesn't commit adultery but it's also internal. He doesn't even lust. The ultimate point that Jesus makes at the end of chapter 5 is that you must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The The righteous requirement of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven is moral perfection. We know, of course, that this level of righteousness isn't attainable by us. We're not able to do it. We can't live perfectly. And so it's important to remember that all the way back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, before Jesus even begins preaching this sermon, He leads off with that familiar phrase, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how He leads off the Sermon on the Mount. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The expectation Jesus has in coming in to preaching the Sermon on the Mount is that no one meets the qualifications for membership. And all of us must understand that heavenly righteousness, what it really is, that we need to turn to God in confession of our sin, and ultimately what we'll see eventually in the book is that Jesus provides the only way of salvation. But when we get to chapter 6, Jesus turns to question the motivations that we have for righteous living. Okay, you say you want to live righteously in accordance with the kingdom of heaven, but what motivate what motivates you to live righteously? And so he does this by comparing fake righteousness of the hypocrites with genuine righteousness of the kingdom citizen. And he gives two examples leading off in chapter 6, you can see them there in the text. He gives two examples. First in our giving, to the poor, and then second, in our prayers. He contrasts the true righteousness with the the pseudo-righteousness, the fake righteousness of the hypocrites. And he says that fake righteousness, in both of those texts, he says fake righteousness performs for others. They live for others to look at them. That's why he calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites were, were play actors. They were pretenders. They were on a stage. They were performing for everyone else. So it wasn't just that they said one thing and they did another. That's what we think of when we hear the term hypocrite, someone who says one thing and does another. That was certainly true of them, but that's not exactly what Jesus means. He means they're performing for other people. What's inside isn't necessarily the character that you see on the outside. They're performing for you. Religious life is their stage and the religious people are their audience. But then Jesus interrupts the discussion there about the motivations for righteousness to instruct us on how to pray. So it's almost as if He's saying, "Like, well, while talking about prayer, let me, let me teach you what the right motivations are for prayer. How should our heart be oriented in our prayers? And so for the last few weeks... We've gone through the Lord's Prayer. But now, Jesus comes back to what He was talking about before the Lord's Prayer and comparing the play actors, the hypocrites, with the righteous. This time in regards to everyone's favorite topic, fasting. One I know we're all familiar with. Now this is just an observation. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I think if I could point to one spiritual discipline that's fallen so out of favor with a culture that we don't even practice it anymore. It would be fasting. The concept has made its way back into our culture just a little bit by some participating in the Lenten season, 40 days leading up to Easter, where they'll give up something like chocolate for 40 days. Now, as, that's like fasting light, okay? That's that's the bare minimum, I guess you could say. You might be able to call it fasting. But th- we're familiar maybe in that concept. Isn't that a Catholic thing? Don't, isn't that what they do leading up to Easter? Th- those kinds of things. But it's made it somewhat into our conscious, so we might be familiar with it vaguely like that. But other than that kind of observation of fasting, I would guess that fasting is not something that's regularly practiced in amongst most of our church or really even the church in Western culture. So it's going to be important for us this morning as we look at this text to first understand what Jesus is saying in the passage, but then also to understand the purpose that fasting serves today. Why should we do it, in other words? And this is part of our problem, I think is that we've lost the meaning of fasting altogether. So we don't understand what it means and so therefore we're not inclined to do it. So we need to see first what Jesus means by it. So we're going to make two observations in this text, from this text and from text around scripture. And then on the second point we're going to have some subpoints, so leave some room if you're writing things down. The first thing that we see in our passage this morning is that righteous fasting never seeks recognition from man. Righteous fasting never seeks recognition from man. So Jesus says there in our text, if you're looking at it, verse 16, he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So we know that in the first century, it was common practice amongst the Jews of the day to fast on Monday and Thursday. That's the typical days that they would go about their fasting would be on Monday and Thursday from sunup to sundown. So there was a teaching in the church that Christians weren't to fast on the same days as the hypocrites lest they be confused with them. And so we also know that even as early as the first century, Christians had started fasting on Wednesday and Friday so that they wouldn't be confused with the hypocrites who were fasting on Monday and Thursday. Now, the common practice for anyone who was fasting, you see this even sometimes in the Old Testament, was to signify that they were fasting so that everyone knew. They were going to do something, some sort of outward sign, that would let people know that they were fasting. It may have even started for perfectly legitimate reasons. Stay away from me. I'm in prayer right now. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to be distracted. Maybe. But then it took on a life of its own. So what they would do, they, they didn't take a bath... They didn't wash, they didn't do any of those things. They kind of stayed in a state of mourning. They put on masks or per- maybe even like hid their face in some way. The word he uses there in the passage that says disfigure, it can also mean hide. And so it may be like what you would think of at a funeral where a lady will put on like a veil that kind of hides her face to let them know that she's in mourning. And so we see this fasting appear in the Old Testament that people took part in the fast and they would put on sackcloth, which would be like an irritant, an, an irritating clothing, and they would you know, put ashes on their head to let everyone know that they were in a state of mourning and that they were, they were staying away from food, they were staying away from really conversations with anybody. And so it appears that that practice from the Old Testament carried over into Jesus' day. Now to be sure... As we look at this topic, there's no command in the New Testament to fast. There's not a command in the New Testament to fast. There isn't even a detailed explanation of when to fast, nor is there a lengthy explanation on how to fast. And so you can certainly piece together throughout the text of Scripture why fasting would be done, but there's not one solid explanation on even uh, how to fast or why to fast. And so though fasting isn't commanded in the New Testament, we do see that it's expected. If you look at what Jesus says here, He says, "If not if you fast, but when you fast. And He says that twice. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. When you fast, do this. So it's not commanded of us, and perhaps that's a good thing because obviously there are people with health issues and people that couldn't actually even tolerate fasting at all and have to eat, but, and, and no, hunger doesn't count as a medical issue, okay? It doesn't count. But, uh, but so there are people that, couldn't, that, that probably can't do it for medical reasons, so it's good probably that it's not commanded of us, but it is expected that a follower of Jesus would fast. And we'll see more on that in a minute. And so the discipline of fasting, as the Scripture points out, is often said to be coupled with prayer. When Nehemiah learns of, the, of Jerusalem in ruins, it says that he sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and prayer before the God of heaven. We see in Esther, when, when the Jews learn by decree of the king that they're all going to be killed... It says that there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel, we also see, also sought the Lord, it says, by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now all of that is to say that here is a picture of one setting aside food. Setting aside eating, setting aside sustenance of any kind in order to communicate with God for a brief season. Maybe a day, or maybe even, as we see with Jesus, 40 days. Typically, it's associated with drastic circumstances. Circumstances that drive someone to forego the basic requirements of food in order to take their petitions, or perhaps even their grief, before the Lord. And to just spend that time just communing with Him. Simply to talk to Him. I cannot be distracted with food at this point. Acknowledging that He is the only one capable of intervening in this situation that I require His help. Now the reason that I think all of that is essential and that we have to understand that where the, the Old Testament and the New Testament are building in this concept of fasting. The reason why that's essential is to understand what it shed what Jesus' words shed light on in the New Testament it draws out what Jesus is condemning here the heinous nature of what the hypocrites are actually using fasting for so Jesus is telling us that the hypocrites in an effort to take part with the traditions of the Jews and fast along with them actually signify to others that they are fasting Now, if you can imagine the significant difference between what they're doing and let's say what Esther and the Jews are doing in the Old Testament. Where the Jews have been told, you're going to be killed. And they all, all of them, think food is not a necessity at this point. Our only audience right now is with the Lord because only He can save us. Yeah. Now contrast that with what the hypocrites are doing. In spite of the fact that the Romans rule the land at the time of the Pharisees, they don't even own their own land at the time of the Pharisees. In spite of the, time, the fact that they're still, because Jesus hasn't fully made it onto the scene yet, not all of them are fully aware of Him They're still anticipating a Messiah who would come in and save them, in spite of the fact that they have plenty of things to express sorrow over or to be grieved over. They fast so that they can be seen by others, they fast so that everyone else will look at them as holy. These are their problems. Jesus says of them, they have received their reward. In other words, the people that they want to pay attention to them, the people that they want to think they are holy, do. Congratulations. For whatever that's worth, you have your audience. So then Jesus lays out the example that we're to follow in verses 17 and 18. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face... That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, a person that wished to be seen by God or rewarded by God would anoint his head and wash his face. This would be today's equivalent of taking a shower and cleaning up, brushing your hair, brushing your teeth. This is part of a person's regular routine. They would wash their face, anoint their, their head with oil. So it's daily washing. It's cleaning up, not signifying that you're, anything's different about your day. But then Jesus ends with that same refrain that He does the previous two times in regards to giving and prayer. He says, Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. But the reward of the hypocrites is that they garner attention from other people. But the righteous receive their reward, which is what? Well, it would seem like it's the Lord's attention. That's their reward when they give. That's their reward when they pray, both of those in secret. When they fast in secret, what is their reward? That God, whose attention you're seeking, you have. But this should bring up the natural question, I think, which is where I want to spend the rest of our time. Why would I fast? Why should I fast? I mean, after all, it's not commanded in Scripture for me to fast, nor am I told exactly what days I should fast, how often I should fast, or any of those things. And we know previously that we've read about prayer. When Jesus begins teaching on prayer, He's like, don't pray like the hypocrites pray, because they think they're going to be heard by their many words. They're just going to heap up all kinds of phrases to God so that maybe He'll pay attention. So we know it's not something that we do. So in fasting, we're not not gaining the Lord's attention in any special way that we wouldn't when we just go into our closet and pray to Him normally. So when we think about that that prayer is really our heart being in the right place, as Jesus enumerates earlier, And, and I also see that fasting isn't required in Scripture, why should I partake in it? I think it's important to understand the basic premise of fasting. And here's what we need to see. This is the point. Fasting of the body is to be a feasting of the soul. Fasting of the body is to be a feasting of the soul. It's pretty clear, based on what Jesus said, that there is a spiritual danger in fasting. He says the same thing with giving money and with prayer as well. There's a spiritual danger in how we would approach fasting. That it's possible to approach good things for the wrong reasons. That we would see it as an opportunity for people to understand how holy we are. Do you understand how seriously I take my faith? I take it really serious. How serious? I'm a fasting Christian. That's how serious I am. I take my faith really serious. So Jesus first is checking our motivations and telling us, check them at the door. And he's, he, he's basically reassuring us of the right motivations for righteousness to make sure that we're doing it for God to see us rather than for man. But uh, think about it this way for a second. For Jesus to issue a warning about fasting, don't fast like this. This is not the right reason for fasting. But then to expect us to go on doing it must mean that there is an incredible reward in fasting. Right? It must mean that there's something incredibly rewarding about fasting in the same way there is with giving and the same way there is with prayer. That it's incredibly rewarding. And it's because I think fasting of the body is to be a feasting of the soul. Now, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. One of my favorite holidays, all right? And all of us know that there are rules to be abided by on Thanksgiving. We know these rules, they're ingrained in us, and they've probably been ingrained for a couple hundred years now. I'm just saying. Rule number one is this I'm going to educate you in case you didn't know what the rules were. Rule number one is that your pants have to have an elastic waistband. (laughs) Rule number one. Now, write these down. You should know these, all right? (laughs) Rule number one, an elastic waistband. I'm pretty sure even the pilgrims were like, man, we could really use some give in these pants, and from then on, we knew elastic waistband was required. Now, rule number two might be regional, okay? It might be regional, but if you grew up in Texas for sure, maybe even outside the state, Thanksgiving must be served during the Detroit Lions game. We know that is rule number two, okay? Uh, can't be served during the cowboy game. Alright, so if the cowboys play early, we got to eat late. If the cowboys play late, we got to eat early. So just, you got to know that going in. Now, rule number three should be obvious, but it may not be. A light breakfast is necessary. Just a light breakfast is necessary. You don't want too much. Alright? You don't want to eat too much at breakfast. You can eat eggs and sausage and biscuits any day. You can't Always have Thanksgiving food. So a light breakfast is necessary. If you, eat, if you don't eat any food, then your stomach will shrink a little bit and then the mashed potatoes are going to put you out of commission during the first plate. You can't do that, okay? All right? But if you eat just a little bit, it'll prime the appetite and get you ready for Thanksgiving. Now, I might be the only one in here who's put that much thought into Thanksgiving and preparation for Thanksgiving food. But I guarantee you that I'm not the only one that in the days leading up to that Thursday, their mouth will start watering as we think about all the food that's going to be served. Oh, she's going to bring that macaroni and cheese that I really like. Or, oh, he's going to bring the stuffing and the dressing or whatever it is that you do for your traditions. Oh, man, the turkey is going to be awesome. And there's a reason why Thanksgiving has the reputation for gluttony. Let's be honest. Is because we all get primed for it. We all get ready. We start thinking about the meals we're going to eat. We don't want to overload our stomach because we know that the big meal is really coming. We want to save room for all the Thanksgiving food, as much room as we possibly can, so that we can cram it in. Now, a similar premise is at work in fasting. In fasting, we're depriving our body of its most basic necessity to remind our soul of its most basic necessity. To remind our soul that the big meal is coming. coming. Our soul longs to be satisfied by God. And both the body's desire for food and the soul's desire for God are both equated to hunger and thirst both are called hunger and thirst you're reminded of the psalm as the deer pants for the water so my soul longs after you um, we hunt, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount he uh, blesses man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness so there's a spiritual ache in the soul that's equated to the ache in the belly that both require their food but but we can go into into times and seasons where we don't feed our soul with those basic necessities and we'll never experience a hunger pain. Not one time. We can go through times and weeks where we close our Bible, we never open it, we never read from the Word, and we don't experience one hunger pain. We simply just go without it. We'll go into modes of prayerlessness for extended periods of time and we won't at all miss it. We won't experience that kind of pain that we would experience if we went for two weeks without food. In fasting, we're using the hunger pain of the body to remind our soul to feast on the spiritual food that only God provides. So we're using that natural physical pain to remind our soul where it needs to get its food. We're we're using the pain of hunger in a fast to remind our soul that we need to feast on the communion with the Creator of the universe. Most of the time that's going to be in prayer, probably coupled with the reading of His Word probably sometimes to just sit and think about God. Now, we do this for a number of reasons. What would be the reasons which would draw us to a fast... There's a couple of things that are given to us in Scripture that I think are worth thinking about right now. And there's really three that I want to name. There's several more that we could probably name, but there's a few that I want to go through right now. The first reason why we might be drawn to a fast would be to mourn over Christ's absence and to long for His return. To mourn over Christ's absence and to long for His return. In Matthew 9, Jesus is questioned about why His disciples don't fast. The disciples of John come and say, we fast, and the Pharisees, they fast, but your disciples, they don't fast. Why don't they fast like the rest of us? And Jesus answers them with the words that will appear on the screen here behind me. You can follow along. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Leave that up on the screen for just a second. Notice what He says to them, that there will be a day when His disciples will resume fasting. But it's been temporarily halted because, why? He is with them. So while I'm with them, it's, it's halted, but there will be a day when they remember to do it again. Now remember a few months ago, oh, and then also what does He say? How is it character, How is their, their fasting characterized? By a state of mourning. He compares it to the mourning over a bridegroom. Do they mourn while the bridegroom is with him? No, they mourn when he's gone. I will be taken away and then the disciples will fast. They'll be thrown into a state of mourning. Remember a few weeks ago when we were in the Beatitudes and Jesus, we heard Jesus say, Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. He's not only talking about mourning over your own personal sin, but I said back then, He's talking about also mourning over the state of the world around you. Brothers and sisters, how can we not be driven to grief over the state of the world around us? Do you know there was a day when my parents, as a little kid, when my parents would let me watch the news there was a day when I could watch the news. I stayed up and watched it so that I could get to the sports at the very end of the news, but I, I was there watching the news. And if there was something bad coming on, the newscaster would say the same thing every time. Parents, you might want to remove your children from the room for this next story, right? You all remember this? Yep. I haven't heard that in a long time, honestly. <laughs> I, I'm a parent of a 6-, 4-, and 2-year-old, and I can't fathom letting them watch the news right now. It's incredible. But all of that pales in comparison to the massive amounts of tragedy that are going on around the world. From Christians who are being persecuted to this very day, we even heard this past Wednesday of some that's going on very near to our church that's very hard to hear where there's oppressive regimes that are driving out Christians left and right, that are holding their thumbs over people, starving them to death if necessary for unjust reasons. And there are times when you look at what's going on and the only response that you can utter is, Come, Lord Jesus. That's not to mention the personal suffering that many in this room have gone through, whether it be disease or all kinds of other things, loss of family members, close family members, that kind of suffering, where it just drives you to a state of grief and you don't know where to turn. You don't know who to look to. All the other options have, have, have all run out. And it's in these times where fasting becomes appropriate where you realize that the only solution to this madness is for Jesus to come back and put an end to the misery and straighten out the world around us to adjudicate this mess. To To put an end to the senseless violence or the killing of children. To put an end to war and poverty. But, But ask yourself, when was the last time That you longed for Christ to return, to restore peace and order? When was the last time that you were so longing for Christ to return that it drove you to give up food and pray for it? When was the last time that we looked at the news or we looked at the events that took place in the world and it drove us not to complain on Facebook but toward a state of mourning where we actually gave up food for a season for a short period of time to just dedicate our lives to prayer in hopes that the Lord would hear us and relieve suffering. Perhaps this is why fasting has fallen out of favor with us. Maybe we're either desensitized to tragedy Or we're completely unaffected by it. Either way, it often doesn't cause that kind of longing for Christ to return. The kind that would cause you to give up things that are staples. The kind that would tell your soul, let's feast on the word of the Lord for a moment. Fasting reminds us of a state of mourning that we should be in. Second, a reason that would drive us to fasting... To humble ourselves before God in response to our sin. To humble ourselves before God in response to our sin. You remember the city of Nineveh that Jonah is told to go and preach to? He walks into the middle of the city and he proclaims this message to God. And you see it there in in Jonah. He says, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. If you'll remember in that passage, they even call the cows to fast. They don't even feed their cows. We don't have time for any of that. Cows, you're holding to fast too. I mean, the basic reason is pretty simple. We only have 40 days before we're going to be dead. So let's take those 40 days and let's just set aside everything else we can possibly think of and let's just focus our, all of our attention on the Lord. We take this warning incredibly serious and we want to even demonstrate to the Lord that we take this, this prophecy by Jonah incredibly serious. They believe the preaching of Jonah, that God is angry with them and that He's going to punish them. So they call fast and they dedicate everything to a time of repentance. So food then would be a distraction for them. It would take them away from a time where they're dedicating themselves to the Lord. So it's not simply mourning over the sins of the world around us or the sin that's in the world around us. It's also mourning over our own sins. There are particular sins that we'll continue to be drawn back into in different times in our lives. And if you've ever known addiction or you have known those kinds of struggle, the most difficult part, to be honest with you, is to have an appetite for righteousness. And I don't care whether the sin is gossip or lust or greed or gluttony. I don't care what it is. It attracts you. And it holds you close to the point where you really desire it. There's a a feeling of goodness inside when you pursue it. And what happens is you pursue it so often and you love the feeling that it gets you. That an appetite for righteousness is really hard to muster. You don't feel it the same way. So when it comes to gossip, you start to love to break the news to people that you come in contact with, have you heard what's happening? Oh, you haven't heard? Well, let me tell you. And there's a feeling inside you that you, you get really happy about that. And that you really like doing that. And it's a fun thing to do. And before long, you find yourself around the coffee pot and that's all you're doing. And then when the person that's standing around the coffee pot is engaged in that kind of conversation, they go, oh, wait, wait, wait. This is gossip. I'm not going to be a part of this. And they walk away. What do you say of them? You say, oh, well, goody two shoes. You know, oh, look at what got into that person, okay? Because we are so gra- we gravitate to it so much, and we love the desire. We love the, the feeling that it gives us. The same is true of lust. The same is true of greed. The same is true of gluttony. All of those things bring us a kind of joy. And we get addicted to it. And the appetite for holiness is not nearly as addicting. So, fasting can be used as a, in a state of, of mourning over our own sin to desire that God restore to us that appetite for righteousness and holiness and to seek repentance of our sin. The final reason here is to seek God for some particular direction or blessing, to seek God for some particular direction. Or blessing, if you recall, in Acts thirteen one to three, this is the scene before Paul and Barnabas go on their missionary journey, and it says this in Acts thirteen one to three. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers: Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they're convinced during a time of fasting and prayer that the Holy Spirit is calling out Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. And so they pray and they fast over the decision to send them out, and then they lay their hands on them. We would assume to th- that the Lord would bless their journey and would provide fruit for their journey. And so we see a similar thing in Esther as well. When she's, when she's going in to talk to the king, she calls for a fast. As she goes to, to make this big decision and to really take a, a strong leap forward, leap of faith, she asks the Jews to pray for her and fast. And so there are times where we recognize that the decision that we've got to make is such a big decision and that we need the Lord's help in making this decision. And so we commit ourselves to prayer and fasting. I don't even want food at this moment. I just need wisdom from the Lord at this time. So it's a way of demonstrating both to yourself and to the Lord the seriousness with which you take the situation. But I take this so serious that food is a distraction for me. So in these scenarios, all three that I've mentioned, the physical hunger pain is reminding the soul of the need that it has for the Lord's help and intervention, the need for daily sustenance. So, now how do we take this to us? How do we bring this to us where we are on a daily basis? As Americans who have pantries full of food right now, how do we bring this to us? How do we embody this as a church? Because if you really look at what's being called for here, this is a person who is not only a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but who is regularly setting aside food in order to dedicate his soul to feasting on the Lord's provision both through prayer and through His Word. I don't know about you, but when I see that person in Scripture, I want to be that person. That's the kind of person that I want to be. That's the kind of person that I want our, our church to embody. The kind of people that recognize that the food from, that the Lord provides to us, the spiritual nourishment, is desperately important to us and that we'll do anything to have. We've put out this Bible reading and prayer guide um, When the new year came around last year and when the new year comes around this year, we'll be putting it out again. So I'll be putting out another one that's very similar to the one that was put out this year. The only modification that I'm going to make is that uh, that we're going to implement fasting church-wide. So on the 31st of every month, we will fast. Now, some of you are thinking, not every month has a 31 in it. And you're smart. Not every, not every month has a 31 in it, and that's with intention. So there will be seven fasts for the whole church to participate in during the year. If my math is right, okay, um, there will be seven fasts during the, the whole year on the 31st of each month. And there will be instructions for those fasts on how we go about those fasts, what we'll be praying for, and sometimes we'll take it as it comes. If there's tragedy that we really need to pray over, it will be a way of simply just teaching us that regular routine of fasting so that we realize what a blessing it is and that we should be doing it. Now, I come back to the question that I asked at the beginning. How far are you willing to go to feed your soul? The concept of fasting is a desire. First and foremost, to be seen by none other than the Almighty God and to recognize that He alone can answer me, that He alone can provide for me, that He alone has solutions and, has, and can rectify situations that we are in that he alone is what our soul really desperately needs. If this is the reason for fasting, then I wonder what it says about us that it's fallen out of favor in our society. What does it say about our the church, not just archers, church, the church in general, that it's fallen out of favor with us? if its point is that the soul feasts on God, what does it say about us that we don't want to do it? And that's not just on people in the pews. That's on people behind the pulpits too. It's got to be taught before it can be heard. It's got to be taught before it can be practiced. It implicates all of us in this. But when is the last time that we thought of our relationship with the Lord like that? That my soul needs to feast on your word, needs to communicate with you in prayer, needs to meditate on the things that you've given to me. Question is, does that describe the longing that you have in your relationship with the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've seen in your word, our soul is to feast on you. I confess that so often I don't think about it that way. I think of check boxes sometimes. I think of things that I need to do because I know they're the right thing to do. I often don't think about my soul as needing to feed on Your Word and communicate with You in prayer. Confess my sins. Put before You my petitions. Adore You for who You are. Give thanks to you for what you've provided. So often that falls by the wayside. And I think of it as merely checkboxes, things that I need to do. Lord, I pray you would shake us of that. We would cast those things aside, knowing that you are our Heavenly Father. That you love us, you see us, you care for us. That you died so that we might have a relationship with you. You sent your son to die for us that we might have a relationship with you. What an amazing thing that is. That we may commune with the God of the universe. Maker of heaven and earth for many in this room for probably all of us in this room to one degree or another the appetite for destruction outweighs the appetite for righteousness and holiness so Lord I pray by whatever means necessary you expose that and rid us of it that we may more than anything desire to feast on your word, that it would be a true joy for us, desire to commune with you in prayer, that it would be burden-lifting, that we would see it for our benefit, not as something we just have to do. Thank you for providing your word to us, that we may learn and grow and be changed in Jesus' name, amen.